Welcome to Nextcast, where we take you on a thrilling journey into the heart of innovation, urban development, and the future of our bustling cities. I'm your host, Emilia, CEO of SwissNext in San Francisco, and this is the Metropolis season. Good morning and welcome to this new episode of the Metropolis next cast um, podcast season. Uh, today we are here with uh, Anna and Axel from the MacIver X Chevrolet office, an architecture office. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. So let's start by, you know, maybe just introducing yourself. Can you tell us who you are, what you do, Anna and Alex? Yes, um, so my name is Anna McIver Eck, and uh, with Axel, we co-founded the office uh, McIver Eck Chevrolet, um, I think about three years ago now. And um, at the same time, we're also both teaching as professors at the Berner Fachhochschule, so in Switzerland, in the city of Bern. And um, we also are part of a collective called La Clique, which is um, a collective of 15 people. Um, there we're active in the domains of architecture, but also uh, art and installation, also like social, socially minded structures uh, that often in public space as well. So we have this kind of, I guess, uh, quite mixed uh, background, sort of in research and action in large scale, small scale. I would say we work in like all of these, all of these fields. No, so I'm Axel. I'm from Neuchâtel, actually, so the French part of Switzerland. Uh, and I grew up in Neuchâtel, but then I went to study architecture first at EPFL, then in, in Copenhagen in Denmark, where actually I've met Anna, um, and then finished my studies in Zurich. Um, and since then, we've been working a bit abroad, but mostly uh, now we have our main office in Zurich and also a smaller office in Lausanne. Um, but I think Anna... I will let you speak because your background is much broader. <laughs> Not necessarily. Um, I, I, I was born in Sweden, um, but my parents, my, my father's from Sweden, my mother's from Denmark, and then we moved around a lot when I was a child, so I wouldn't say that I have a very specific um, place where I live or where I come from. I, have, I was quite mixed, my background. And um, before studying architecture, I did a bachelor in business, language, and culture in Copenhagen. And that's where we met, actually. Um, I had just finished my bachelor and I was working at a film festival there. And then, um, yeah, I sort of switched uh, directions, I guess, and got into architecture and studied in, in Switzerland then. So first in Mendrisio and then in Zurich. So also in like different canton or different uh, language regions of Switzerland, which is really nice. So you are a Swiss Scandinavian uh, architecture office. Can you can you tell us more about this? What are like the similarities between the architecture styles, main differences? <laughs> it's a good question. Is, is it a topic for you? <laughs> I don't know. I think so I... because I think recently, in the past few years, we had also been involved in projects in in Denmark, in Copenhagen, kind of by chance or yeah, maybe through people we had met in the studies. And so it has been always the possibilities uh, or the occasion to kind of reflect about yeah, the similar similarities and the differences between these two uh, places. And 
I don't, I don't, we don't have like a, a perfect answer to this, but at least to me, what I would notice as the main difference. So, but I guess we are sometimes craving or appreciating in what happens in Scandinavia is very much this focus on the public space and this ability of really, um, I think Scandinavian have, have a really great strength in actually activating public, public spaces, creating programs or placing programs that involve a wide array of people um, and yeah, that can really maybe transform spaces that could be quite difficult into successful, uh, vibrant uh, um, places um, of exchange also. And I think on the other side, when we talk to our friends who are mostly located in Scandinavia, when they look in Switzerland, I think what they what they're really looking up to is the fact that in Switzerland the 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 architecture scene kept a very central place, I would say, um, and the architects still have also a lot of freedom and control on the project. I think it's one of the last countries in the world where the architect is involved in the building process from the beginning all the way to the end. Mm -hmm. Which means that we keep to like we have to kind of the responsibility of the construction site all the way to the end, which is a huge responsibility. It's sometimes a lot of headaches, but it's also what ensures that you can really make sure that uh, yeah, even the small decisions, the small constructive decisions, uh, you have something to say about them, and it really has a huge influence on the quality. I think at the end. Yeah, it's true. I think. I think also in Denmark and Sweden, there was this kind of, um, I think the, the height of, of the architecture scene in the 20th century was sort of in like the 50s, 60s, with sort of, there was a Anna Jakobsen, Finn Jule, uh, Jan Utzen, uh, Sverre Feen, uh, all this, there was sort of this era, also like Leverand, that was, they were really sort of at the pinnacle of, of architecture, I guess. And since then, I think they're struggling a little bit to find their voice also because it's a very heavy heritage they have. Like, it's very strong. It's, it's really all because a lot of them also got into, like, design as well, sort of, like, furniture design or smaller pieces. So it became something that was ubiquitous. Everybody has these pieces in their house or they have this, they grow up with it kind of, you know, it's everywhere around you. So it's kind of a, it's almost a bit, a bit heavy. You feel, you really feel this, like, the weight of the, the previous masters maybe still in the society. So the architecture scene is maybe yeah there's this difficulty of like breaking free from this whereas in switzerland i think there was less this kind of like there's always been I mean, there's this le corbusier i guess of course <laughs> he, he never left <laughs> he probably stayed for another 200 years but um i think there was a bit more freedom in switzerland from maybe. the way That's i understand true. it i don't know hmm. i was i was talking to a swiss designer uh last week and uh, she she was here in the U.S. and she was telling me, um, oh, you know, Switzerland is not doing good by representing, you know, its design tradition abroad. We just hear about Scandinavian design and we don't hear anything anymore about Swiss design. What would you say? But, yeah, it's true. I mean, I mean, Swiss design is also it's very um, it's very well respected, especially in the fields of like typography or um, graphic design it's like one of the biggest countries with like maybe Holland or something um, it's insanely important like most of the just if you look at like the SBB or like the CFF the, the whole design um, that was developed out of this which is also like somehow a basis for like a lot of like so 
how do you say, like signage all around the world, like it became really the, the standard in a way, you know, like how to how to lead three people through a space and things like that. Um, so I, it's true. I think it's still very respected, but maybe they don't they don't talk about it as much. Maybe you. I feel the I respect there still. But I think it's it's kind of refreshing to hear that or what you are saying because um, for architecture you, we have the feeling it's kind of the opposite. Architecture Swiss architecture tends to be overrepresented uh, all globally. I mean it's incredible mm -hmm. how how a small country like Switzerland its architecture is um, exported everywhere, which is which is great on one side. But so, when you are an architect in Switzerland, you tend sometimes also, also to lose a bit of this richness of. You know, just keeping your eyes open to what's ha what's happening abroad and in other places, um, and so yeah, I think sometimes it's it's also quite quite uh, good for a designer or for an architect not to feel like you're the center of the world. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, talking about Swiss architects going abroad, um, you will be coming to San Francisco with uh, with your project for uh, the 20th anniversary of of Swissnext. Um, can you tell us more? The project is called the Petanque Ronanes. Um, could you explain us a little bit? What is it about? What is so special about it? Okay. No, it's a building that we've a uh, small competition that we won uh, last year, and so it's a public building for the city of Renan. That's uh, next to Lausanne, so in the French side of Switzerland, um, and it's a uh, it's a building basically for a uh, bull club, so this port, Petanque. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it's, we were really excited about this project and we thought it was relevant for Swissnext actually because we've been able through this project, also mainly because the city of Renan actually, they are incredibly courageous and they are really pushing actually to innovate. And so we've been able to experiment with a lot of building techniques um, on different levels that allow us to kind of um, discover or try to apply actually quite radical sustainability solutions. Um, so that's why I think from a small project, uh, yeah, kind of boulodrome that might appear actually, maybe it's not like a school or kind of, uh, I don't know, town, town hall or something like this, but it's still a public building with a relative size. So it's about five, 600 square meters where we are able to actually, yeah, really kind of open new ways of construction, which, uh, yeah, which for us is actually really thrilling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think for, for us, one of the, I think one of the main, the main things that we're really excited about with the project as well, that um, the whole load bearing structure of the building is made out of reused concrete. So it's not recycled concrete, which is something completely different where you sort of take existing concrete you grind it up using a lot of energy, a lot of great energy, and then you reconstitute it into new concrete. Like reused concrete is really like taking pieces of concrete as they are, cutting them, and then reusing them again in the same form. So um, essentially there was a building about two kilometers away um, that our engineer knew about. He knew that it was going to be destroyed. And um, instead of destroying the building, there was an idea of like deconstructing the building, basically. So you cut it up into like pieces that then can be reused. And um, so our project was then one of the one of the projects that was used um, where they were going to use this reused concrete. So essentially they cut the slab, so like the horizontal floor slabs into pieces 
and we then transported it about two kilometers, so a really short distance, to this construction site. And where we're now going to be using it, so we're going to take this, these horizontal slabs, turn them vertical, and then they're going to be used as a load-bearing structure. How did you how did you come up with this idea? Did did you know that this building was was about to be destroyed or how? Um, no, actually, our engineer was the one that knew about the building that was going to be destroyed, um, and he was somehow active. He knew the people who were doing it, which is a construction company, and um, yeah, somehow through this, he was able to also find different projects. Somehow, like, use this building as a resource essentially that could then somehow fund or like be used for different projects that were happening around the same time through his through his network. Um, some of it went to EPFL. Some of it went to. Fribourg, and so like it was quite interesting. Like, I mean, the, the other projects were much more sort of like small scale pavilions or like a wall or something, and ours was the one that was really like a public building that will stay and that will be like really built. And it was the only project that was using the concrete in this way. And I guess for us, it's always um, as an architecture office, the question of concrete is quite a big question. Um, of course, Switzerland is it has a great tradition in it, but. When you know that the construction industry is re responsible nowadays for 40% of the CO2 emissions, and that concrete is actually one of the material that produces the most of CO2 within these processes, um, it's not as much a, a reflex anymore as architects to use concrete. And the more and more when you build, you think, okay, how can we avoid this? Or how can you actually yeah, find ways? Because you cannot always avoid concrete because it's so uh, actually practical in terms of structure, in terms of resistance to water and everything. Durability. Durability. And so the fact of actually being able to develop this new technique of yeah, reusing this concrete, saving, I think it's more than 95% of the CO2 through this, um, was actually really a kind of game, game changer for us to realize, ah, actually, we can still use concrete, but we just have to actually rethink the way we use it. Uh, in order to to still make sense out of it. Mm -hmm. So no concrete is not a very good news for uh, the heritage of Le Corbusier, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you could start cutting it up. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that? I mean, you uh, Anna, you made this difference between reusing and recycling. Is that why you uh, call your project radical sustainability, or well, like because I was. Uh, surprised to hear this word, like it's, it's a radical sustainability, so it means that it's going further than sustainability. Could you could you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think for us, the, there's this notion of all projects nowadays have to deal with sustainability to a certain extent. And there are some solutions that um, are kind of maybe ready-made, and there are also solutions that you apply at the end. You know, you, you design your whole project, and then at the end, you add this kind of layer of sustainability of it, on it. You add some solar panels on the roof, you add some more insulation, and then you can say it's, it's uh, sustainable. You add some wood on the facade, exactly. on top of the concrete <laughs> that you just poured. And I guess for us, it's, it's this question, how can, uh, for sustainability, something that should come right at the start of the project. You have to start the project by thinking, how can we make it sustainable? It's also actually the way we are teaching in Bern. Um, it's kind of sustainability is actually the, the trigger for the project almost. And so, for instance, using reused concrete forced us to completely change the way we designed because suddenly we had to decide on the size of the elements because the building, the existing building was being demolished. We had just started the design of the Boulodrome. 
So we had to take executive decisions at a way earlier stage than what architects would usually do. And we had to then challenge the way we were usually designing. So what went actually from a crisis at the beginning became actually quite fun to realize it's like a huge Lego. You, you draw a size, it becomes your brick. It was two by four meters, so it's actually a very big brick. And then you have to, to deal with the consequences. So it's, it, mm-hmm. it becomes very fun, actually, in a way. Um, and so you, you realize that, but that by adapting or by adopting these kind of strategies, um, yeah, it, it's deeply that you have to rethink your job as an architect. And it was the same. That the was same my ap- next question. I was, I was thinking, I mean, does that mean that, you know, this, the, the architect who had just like a blank page and was just drawing things coming from his mind, that this job is going to change and is going to become more of a... I, I like the analogy of the Lego player. I think that that's a good one to, you know, understand what does it mean to be circular. Yeah, I think, I, I definitely think that architects, I mean, I, I always say that architecture is also a lot about being curious. And I think this kind of, the, the use of the curiosity is going to be more and more important because you're going to have to be curious about wanting to, like also keeping your ears and eyes open about opportunities. You know, like you also you have to be, if you hear that this building is being destroyed, maybe you then as an architect also take the step to speak to the people, find the owner, why are you destroying it? Could we use it differently? Could we do something else to it? So that the architect also starts to become a bit more of an active player in this, um, in this, in this whole process. You know, instead of just like waiting for projects to come to you or for like ideas to come to you. You know, you're kind of like just seeing opportunities and you're somehow seeking them out. Maybe seeing if you can play a role and change the, the fate of certain of certain places, buildings. Um, I think that there's definitely like a kind of switch that's happening uh, with with regards to this kind of reuse. I mean. Like we've we've heard as well a lot like the amount of the amount of buildings, especially if we talk about, for example, Europe. Um, I mostly know this context just because that's where we're working. But there's already enough built stock to last us for the next 100 years. We don't need to actually build anything more. There are so many things that are empty or, or underused. Or and uh, for example, in the countryside, there are loads of things that are abandoned, and then cities are becoming more dense. And yet we still then we just build new things in the city and we leave the things that are that are decaying to decay even more. You know, there are certain ways of like redistribution, like it's much more of a kind of more global way of seeing things. Like you can't just sit and then only think about your idea and then you talk to companies and they produce something for you and then it's then that becomes a project. I think there's new structures, new networks uh, being created. Can you, so there is enough built structure in Europe for the, next 100 years is that what you said just i think yeah there, there, are, there, there are some research being made at the moment i think one of the yeah. leading figure in this is uh, charlotte malterbart uh, who's actually a professor now at epfl um, and they're actually uh, questioning the need actually to make new structures uh, yeah. and so they're really analyzing the building the build stock mm-hmm. uh, and analyzing how much is empty and actually how, many, how much square meters needed and Actually, it always shows that yeah, we we have actually enough square meters to host all of the activities we have. Uh, yeah. So actually, it's not only about building new, but it's also about using what we already have in a better way. Yeah. We have another guest in this podcast, uh, Arabelle de Saussure, working at ETH, and um, her work is about creating this platform where. Um, people working in construction could um, kind of 
put all the elements of the buildings that are being destroyed or it's also I think it's even a, a digital uh, an automated process and mm -hmm. uh, so that architect could somehow go on this uh, we called it during the during the podcast um the, the Facebook market for construction, so to say, or the eBay for, for construction. Um, and it's, it's, I think, resonating a little bit to your work. I was wondering what were your challenges when you built this building? Yeah. Um, Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's very true. Because on one side, when we, th when we thought about this idea, we, we have a... Um, an image when we were actually we were, a, we were on a zoom call with our engineer and then we the moment that that this idea came to reuse it to use them as uh, walls as the load-bearing structure suddenly we were like oh it's, actually we will finally be building a building the way that we thought construction was working when we were five years old you know like it's super naive in a way and so simple um and so after this you get super optimistic and you think it's so clear that we will not have any problem but then as anna said you realize how actually even a very simple idea that in a structural way actually works very well um, actually challenges the whole building industry because it's not ready for it. It's not meant for it. So basically the questions about warranties, how do you make sure that the concrete uh, follows the norms or is strong enough? Uh, mm -hmm. You can very easily make tests to show that it's strong enough, but how do you convince people? Or, you know, there are no norms, that there, there's not like a... a pre-made path for it so you kind of have to make it yourself uh, it's a public building so how do you convince then the city uh, that they have to pay to get old concrete instead of getting new concrete uh, it's a whole, whole almost like pedagogical process um, mm -hmm. and even at the end when everyone is convinced and they're like yes let's do it and then you have to pay for the concrete plates and they're like oh actually we are only allowed to pay like once we've voted the uh, building uh, budget, which actually arri will arrive in one year. Mm -hmm. So we cannot pay for them now. And you're like, well, what do we do then? And then they have to kind of turn around their whole administrative department to find yeah. a way to make it. Um, yeah, you realize how, how many actually barriers there are. And uh, yeah. it's actually, I mean, of course, it's a lot of effort, but it's also very exciting to see also because that's what is amazing with this city is that when people believe in an idea and there really everyone is on the same page, you can really turn all these things around that maybe the first time you talk about them, they're like, no, no, it's not possible. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I mean, where there's a will, there's a way. You know, I think that's it's very true, especially for public projects, because things, they're, they're not impossible. They're just politically very complicated. And for example, there we've also had the experience that uh, the, the city architect that we're working with is also very... Um, also like in a way politically active, like also understands these processes and what's needed uh, to, to change them. I think it's not always a given that um, every city uh, wants to have a city architect that's also like willing to go this extra step and also to try and convince people on behalf of the architects or on behalf of uh, I mean, yeah, the, the whole construction team, let's say the engineers. I think, yeah, that's definitely. Can you say a couple of words about the costs? Is the is the process is it like more costly or or the same? Yeah, we were actually we were discussing this today. We were also like trying to we were trying to theorize whether we thought that the price of reused concrete would go down over time or go up 
because I guess in terms of economics, um, kind of like supply and demand, but also just the um, availability of it, because uh, of course there's a lot of it. And so we were wondering whether actually in the future, I was, I was theorizing that maybe in the future it might become more expensive and Axel was saying that it might become cheaper. But for the moment, the deal that we got was that it basically cost the same amount as, um, as to make new concrete. Um, and yeah, we were saying that we had the feeling, seeing as the company that was doing this, they were sort of a little bit, they were a little bit reticent. They haven't really done it before. It was a little bit experimental. I think they were kind of erring on the side of caution of how much it would cost them to cut these, uh, to cut these um, slabs up. In the future, I think if companies have done it many times, they also optimize their processes. They optimize the way of, they understand exactly how long it's going to take. Uh, how how much it's going to cost, and I think then prices will start to stabilize a little bit. But we were also talking about whether, for example, if like taxes on um, on trash will increase, because at the moment uh, uh, something that's really interesting for the companies that are destroying them is that actually it's cheaper because it's very expensive to bring such heavy material to the trash or like to recycle it somehow. It's quite an expensive cost, and so that you remove, let's say, like you say, we take it from you, we transport it to wherever we're going to take it. And you don't need to pay to like somehow get rid of all this stuff in a safe way, um, as safe as that can be. So um, you, you're kind of saving money in a way for the for whoever owns it or whoever's destroying it. In that mm. sense, like you're taking, let's say, a like logistics and b costs off of their off of their side. Then at the same time, I was wondering if like if it starts to also become, let's say, like like a, a wanted material like because if everybody if let's say norms change in uh, on the construction side and they say that you need to build with reused concrete then mm -hmm. maybe there'll be such a demand for reused concrete that they will be able to then re-increase the prices because you're i mean it's a lot to do with legislation often at the end. i don't know i was i'm 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 not sure uh, uh, yeah okay, i you still do. don't agree no no because no, i think that, that i mean on this project I mean, it's already incredible that to 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 use it as a load bearing structure, which has, yeah, it's somehow so, so experimental in a way that we get the same price as actually just making new concrete. Uh, that that's quite a victory for us. I think it already shows that it's actually pertinent for for cities to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm I'm really sure it's going to go down the price because the poly on one side the politics they have pressure and they have to increase the taxes on waste you cannot just let people like 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 fill the the waste grounds with material uh infinitely you have to kind of start to ma make people reuse the materials and also as soon as this process becomes more developed i mean we've seen in our project the way they've been con cutting the concrete it's beautiful but they have this they did it with like such a small saw like yeah. there's no there's no optimized tool to do this yeah. And when you pour new concrete, you see everything is like perfectly made to be as efficient as possible. But nowadays, we are like we are still kind of inventing and and kind of trying out stuff. And I'm sure in five or ten years, when it becomes more spread around, the companies will be much more prepared and they will have much more efficient tools to actually uh, yeah do this serious. process. Yeah. yeah, a new industry, a new upcoming industry somehow. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. If we if we zoom out a little bit now from your individual project, I was wondering if you could describe us um, your vision of the future city. How how should it look like? Um, 
I think um, for us, something that's interesting, like a future city, I think we hear a lot of um, talk about this kind of idea of the smart city um, or, yeah, like the cities that suddenly know everything about you or that adapt themselves to, to you. And I, I think we, we still see a lot of uh, potential in more like a low-tech future, like also sort of like being able to, for example, I think having cities that have this richness of layers of the past that you somehow like reuse things, reuse buildings, repurpose them, change them. Um, these cities that somehow build upon their past and don't forget about it, but somehow they still change the direction. I, I, I see, I see like a, a future for this uh, much more than maybe like cities that that over uh, overly rely on technology to somehow solve like, existing problems in cities. Because I don't really have the feeling that kind of yeah like surveillance and data collection and things like that about people is really going to be. I don't know. Maybe I'm too too conservative about it, but. I have the feeling that it's uh, there are also many things that can be done with uh, with the existing, but just by like looking at things in a different way. But I think it goes a bit in the direction you were saying before the in your question about how does it change the, the job of the architect. Uh, it's less about building cities where you control everything from the start to the end, and where if you build a new building, you get rid of what was before and you make it brand new. But it's about a city where you have this different times of history that start to accumulate on top of one of one another and start to communicate with one another. And so you have this kind of depth of time that, uh, that really appears. And I think that that's much more rich also as environments uh, for humans to live in. Um, mm -hmm. I also think there's a huge progress to be made in the way also that the, the different, like, I think this is something that we are starting to be aware of, but how, um, we've been sealing surfaces, sealing the ground for so long and how we can actually start to open up the ground, let the water run in again, uh, actually use trees not as enemies that deform the roads, but trees as, you know, making us able to breathe within the cities. I think also these kind of synergies and symbiosis between the built and natural environments is something that will develop very strongly in the future and that will be, uh, yeah, like really improve the qualities of urban environments. How, so what are your thoughts when uh, there, there, there is a case here in um, in, San, in California about a group of investors who want to build uh, a new city from the ground, from the scratch? What, what are your thoughts about this type of project? I think we've seen the project, no, and it is, uh, I've showed it to you not uh, so long yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, they had the kind of this very idyllic looking city, no? Mm -hmm. it's kind of, yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I think also this, it's it's very easy to think of this idea of like the tabula rasa, like you have this 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 perfect empty land and then you build whatever you want and it's somehow your, your dream in a way, like which is a dream of, let's say, a certain group of people for a certain period of time. It's not something, it's not necessarily, let's say, a, a, re, a reality that's accessible for everyone. Like I, I have the feeling that, I mean, I... I've never been to San Francisco, but I just I read about it, etc., and things like that. I also had the feeling that maybe it's also worth concentrating on existing cities and also seeing how they can be developed. I mean, I'm sure San Francisco has areas of the city or things that can be still improved, that can be rethought. Like, if these same investors would put as much, let's say, time and energy into like improving San Francisco as building their dream in the desert somewhere, um, then maybe that would be 
maybe I'm being a bit too provocative, but maybe that would also be something a little bit more worthwhile and probably but more difficult and much more difficult to sell because maybe mm. it's more like incremental measures that take longer time and um, they're not so visible maybe, but are very useful for, for the population. So it's difficult. It's a difficult sell, I guess, as an investor, but probably more um, durable in the long term. And probably something that is difficult for us uh, at at least in Switzerland to understand because I think we wouldn't we wouldn't have the land to do something like that. No, no, no for sure. It's uh, I mean I, I lived in the Middle East as well for quite a long time in Oman, and there it's of course the very similar themes coming up. I mean investors also have this dream of a certain a certain reality at a certain period of time, and then they build some kind of mad like city somewhere in somewhere maybe completely unrelated to an existing city. And they somehow think if I build it, then everyone will come and they want to stay here. And most of the time, these these schemes don't work. I mean, it's at least in the Middle East, it's really not a, it's it's not durable in a way because people then don't really know what like why am I here? What is this place? Like it's sort of just sprung up out of nowhere. Like mm. what binds people together in in these kinds of cities? Is it just their social status, um, or I mean, yeah, what is the like, what's the aim of these kinds of cities? I'm sure. Mm. No, I think things grow slowly also, like you, you don't um, uh, build a city, I mean, if you build a city out of, out of nothing in, in a few years, it's the same actually at different scales, even if you build a new building out of nothing. For 10 years or for five years, it's a new building. But then after 10 years, it becomes one of these, you know, like it's like the, the teenage time, you know, it becomes this kind of not so nice time where <laughs> you, no one wants to live in this building anymore. The thing with these cities is like, oh, it was the new thing 10 years ago. Uh, and actually, cities that have been there for 100 years, 200 years. In Switzerland, of course, you, we talk almost about millennials, so even more than that sometimes. Um, like, you have, you really have this kind of, you have so many, yeah, such a big depth that has growth, grown, that actually you have this quality, that you have this culture, you have, um, yeah, you have something that, that will create actually an attraction that will not die. So that's why I think it's, even if it's, as Anna was very rightly saying it's much more difficult to act in this existing environment, but you invest your money into something that actually will last for a long time and it will not just be the new thing that you try to sell as quickly as possible to get your money and then you escape yeah, because yeah. you know it's going to kind of decay. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, it's, I think this, this this element of also like why cities are in certain places, I mean, they're usually also very linked to very like strong pragmatic links, why a certain settlement sprung up in a certain place. I mean, if you go back a very long time, often it was very it was linked to like very base needs, sources of water, um, you know, protection maybe from the within the landscape, uh, a specific placement in the landscape where they could then see enemies and things like that. And I think today, if you start to just like build cities, I mean, we don't we no longer let's say have this kind of very primal needs like water, poor, whatever. We just we get up another pipe and we'll get some water here. It'll be fine. Like people somehow don't see the. The value in this like oh we don't have any enemies no one's going to come and attack us like we don't need a hill like it's fine we could just you just you have this idea that you can make yeah like a utopian society wherever you want and i think that would work if then you have a group of people that also like really want to make this work you know like i mean they have kind of this like drop city like america has quite a strong um 
a strong culture of these kind of like uh, communities that sprung up um, in kind of you know utopian societies uh, in the desert kind of self-built and things like that there's a really strong culture of this in the u.s but um, these are also that was because the people that were there were also want they were wanting to make this thing there they decided by themselves and they would live there and they would take care of it let's say whereas if it's an investor that's just building something and then okay you can come live here if you have enough money not a very strong link, I guess. Uh, Probably the importance of like bottom-up processes and uh, having having a, a community um, mm -hmm. supporting mm -hmm. this type of project, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much. If you um, think about the biggest challenges for future cities, what would they be? I think um, to avoid uh, overheating so that people can't live there anymore. <laughs> I have the feeling, I mean, now um, Zurich, it's not really, it's not a city that is in a, I would say it's not, a, you wouldn't really classify it as a very warm city, but there are really long periods of the year in the summer already now where you start to feel these, like, it's, it's pretty unbearable to be in the city already now. I mean, the climate change, we're, we're feeling it quite, I think, quite acutely. And I really have the feeling in my opinion, it's, it's one of the, the main themes if people are still going to want to actually live in cities, like if is, is, is there a way to keep them physically livable for the foreseeable next 100, 200 years, which if you want to make investments in a city in general, it's quite expensive, land costs are more expensive, processes are more expensive, so you don't want to make, make a, an investment in something that you'll only be able to use for 50 years or something, and then it's too hot, and then everyone has to leave and go live mm. in the countryside or by the seaside, like Cities need uh, long-term investments because it's, it's big investments generally that you need for large parts of the population. So I have the feeling like to really assure this, this, this future to keep investments coming, I think for me, it's, it's a really important theme. Like how do mm -hmm. we open up, as Axel was saying, like open up the ground again, like stop this kind of over-collection of heat, uh, creating these heat islands in cities where on a hot day, you just can't be there. You have to mm -hmm. leave, you know, you have to jump in the water or something. Yeah, and I think the, um, as you were saying, in Switzerland, like 10 or 15 years ago, we were only talking about how much insulation you need to, you need to put on your building not to be cold in winter. And uh, today, like we we are we have some uh, building applications in process, and the main questions we receive is like, how do you ensure that people are not too hot in summer? So you really see the, in 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 really. In the span of 15 years, you see, like the paradigm has completely changed. Mm -hmm. And what what I th think it's a huge challenge, but it's also a huge opportunity. And I think, as architects, it's easy to complain and to say that we are in a crisis and to say, ah, oh, there are so many challenges in front of us. But it's also uh, actually, I think, great opportunities for a profession to actually have like, real constraints to answer to and real challenges to answer to, and. To do it actually through um, really simple means, I think there are a lot of new of new answers that come or new par parameters that come into the the way we design building, which are really nice. For instance, just taking into the con consideration uh, when you make like a neighborhood or something like this, how, where is the wind coming? How do you let the wind blow through the neighborhood? How do you make sure that this this kind of in the nights the whole neighborhood can cool down? Um, yeah, where's the where's the shade? Where like how do you make sure that when it rains you can make the most of this rain? You know that it really stays in the ground, that it cools down the whole area around it, and that you ju just as we used to do, like put it as quickly as possible in pipes and get rid of it. 
Mm-hmm. And all these things are so simple. They are really, for me, it allows us also to almost come back to the basic questions of architecture. Uh, and I think it's really beautiful. It's interesting. It's exactly the point that we were making before about putting in settlement where a couple of basic needs can be covered to actually somehow come back to this, to, yeah, to, to this way of building. Um, maybe a last question would be what um, everyday change can people implement? to contribute to a more sustainable urban future? Do you have any tip? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> It's a hard one. I don't know. I think maybe uh, our position on this, we were talking about bottom-up before, and I think, of course, bottom-up processes are a huge, uh, have a huge power. But in terms of sustainability, we, I think we tend, I, I, I guess you agree with me, but you can also... I don't know, but but I think it's also one place where we tend to put a lot of pressure on the indiv- individual and say people have to stop eating meat, people have to uh, stop going on holidays and everything. And of course, it will make a difference. But I think it's also the place where other subjects on which industries and governments also have to show the way, lead the way. And I think uh, Switzerland, that has the chance and so, uh, to, to be in a, a country like very like, good situation uh, is the type of country that really should show the way that uh, with strong policies uh, you can actually really uh, start to make change that, that, that have a real uh, impact uh, on society. So, so on this one, I think it's mostly maybe the, for this one, we should go, we should also believe that the top down can have a strong effect. I think. Yeah, that's true. I think they can, they probably have a stronger effect than, than the individual really can. I, I think I do agree with you that there's a there's a very like unnatural pressure put on the individual uh, to solve, uh, like also the, yeah, the kind of burden of guilt and the burden of uh, having to solve that. Like you get both somehow um, when it was a society that led people to becoming these kinds of consumers, let's say like, I mean, it was certain, certain forces that sort of asked, told people to want these things and now we're telling them, no, 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 no. You shouldn't want these things. That's terrible. Why are you such a bad person? So it's it's true. Um, I, I I couldn't say maybe yeah maybe there's this like acting on a more political level is sort of the is what uh, the individual should be and can really have mm. force, especially in Switzerland with direct democracy. That's true. There's very much uh, this kind of bottom-up processes with a top-down uh, effect yeah. have have their have their place in Switzerland like. Uh, I mean, yeah, the form of like protest or like uh, mm. um, demonstration, things like that. It's it's that's lucky in Switzerland. I mean, there's an extremely open, to vote. there's an extremely open culture towards yeah. this. Yeah, mm-hmm. not all countries in the world have this. So a call to action to uh, to policymakers and people to go to vote, I guess. Yes, yeah. very much. So. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Anna and Axel. Thank you so much for participating Thanks, to this uh, podcast, Nextcast uh, podcast, our Metropolis edition. Um, thank you for all those insights about the future of cities, about how we can be more um, sustainable, how we can be radically sustainable. And uh, we wish you have a good day. And thank you for participating. Thank you. Thanks. You thank too, you. This episode was part of the Metropolis season where we celebrate Swissnex in San Francisco's 20th anniversary. 
Find out more about the anniversary and upcoming events by Twistnex in San Francisco in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode and see you at one of our upcoming events.